you. Good morning. Listen, I just want to share a few things here just as an exhortation, but how many of you have had, and I want to see the other room in a second here too, or you can cue it up, but I want to see the response. How many of you have had an abnormally difficult week? Just keep your hands way up. I'm raising my hand, by the way. Okay, there are a lot of people. And, you know, this is, I didn't know what the response would be, but I had a hunch based on what I was going through, a really tough, 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 tough emotional week. And I want to encourage everybody because there's, there is, you know, some of you might not believe in spiritual warfare. You might think like spiritual warfare, like, I don't know. Well, that just doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It means you're clueless, right? Because there's real principalities and there's powers at play in this world. And Jesus is bigger than them all, but he, the enemy uses our weaknesses. He uses our insecurities. And that's why it's so vital. We get rid of past woundedness, insecurities, filters, residues of the world, because that is how he gets into your heart and your mind and starts playing around with your life. And we have the power to overcome everything the enemy throws our way. And this prayer stuff, I just, I want to keep clarifying what is happening in our midst. And like I have shared before, I haven't figured this all out. And I haven't figured out where we'll be in a year from now or five years from now. I don't know where it's going to lead us to. All I know is I am so confident, full of burning conviction that this is not something we take lightly or that we become complacent in. Like we are in a giant test before the Lord to see if he can entrust us with more valuable things, more responsibilities, more sacred things. Like this is our test as a community. And, you know, number one is this thing is affecting our personal lives and hearts. You know, it's, it's really starting to like challenge like, The simple question, do you have a healthy spiritual communion with God? And it's like I've said a million times, you know, if you are praying fervently, effectively at home, as a base every day, as your communion before God, I'm not talking about a quick little scripture out there, read your little devotion and then you go about your day. You need more than that to offset the assault of the enemy you got to have a heart burning full to cast off especially when we are contending as a community to push back and displace darkness what does that mean you're like it's so super spiritual i'll tell you what it means when we actually do this effectively and powerfully blinders will fall off people's eyes and unexpectedly uh a harvest will come forth. People, we're talking people's salvation. But we're, I'm jumping ahead because I'm at the personal part here. I'm, I'm talking about just normal prayer that will help you be able to live above the circumstances and the assaults of this world. Where your emotions will be free from being sucked down into depression and things like that. 
And I mean, this week I felt a massive dose of that. Assault of depression and discouragement. I was, I was fighting. I knew it wasn't just me. I, I didn't even have anything terrible happen in my life. I just felt this massively overwhelming sense of it. And so I want to say, like, this, this whole prayer thing is a gift from God to us to awaken our hearts and, and get us in shape spiritually. It's not meant to be a burden, but going to the gym is a burden when you're, when you're out of shape and when your health is not doing well. And when you start going, you develop an aptitude and a heart and a hunger, and then you start feeling like, oh, I'm so glad I'm in this place. I hunger for this gym. I mean, hopefully it speaks, hopefully there's enough gym people here sometime in their life that they know what I'm talking about. But it's like you develop an appetite. Same thing with eating. You know, you have crap food. And that's what you crave. You have good food and you start going, man, I actually do feel much better. No sugar crashes. I'm like, I feel good. I actually want celery. <laughs> okay. But there's that. And, you know, then there's this whole idea of relationships. Like, like prayer brings us into healthier relationships. The Spirit of God, it's like in a marriage. It says, right, three cords cannot be broken. That's, that's a husband and wife with Jesus right in the middle. And nothing can tear down a marriage with Jesus in the middle. Well, all this, all we're doing with prayer, some of you think it's we're in this for this great thing, and we are, because I'm, I'm getting there. I'm building from a personal context into something greater than yourself. But in your marriage, prayer is the very foundation of health. You cannot get healthy in a real sense and be able to resist against attacks of the enemy without prayer. You have to have that built up. Like I talked last week about the soil. You have to be able to hold the presence of God because your heart goes deep and it can, just like soil holds water, topsoil holds water. You hold God's presence, his love in your heart. And that only takes time of cultivating that soil in your heart and cultivating the hunger. And that is through prayer and the reading of the word, okay? Then we have, you know, even our children. You know, we see things like, um, I, I just, I'm blessed. There's many families that have gotten involved, but like, I look at Tangways and like lining their kids up. And I watch these blocks where they're, all their kids are just reading aloud the word of God. And I'm like, oh man, this, this is, is amazing. This is like how our whole community should be like the young people have a chance to declare the living word of God in a powerful way and I see like the Weymouths I, I saw their group the other night and, and even the heartfelt prayers like I'm so stirred when I'm joining together with others and they're praying for our nation and they're, they're choking up because it's, it's striking something deep in their hearts and they're like yes Lord and I'm like heartfelt prayers you know, generational, reading of the word, praying together. You know, I see like, there's plenty. I could just go on and on naming people, but Shaddix, when you see one, two, three generations, like here singing, praying, just de declaring the word of God, this stuff is powerful. It's the, it's the power of a healthy family. I mean, and if we all did that, if we all brought our kids and we started like instructing them and modeling and, and doing prayer with them, it's messy, but 
That's what parenting is. That's what raising families is. It's messy. So bring them. Bring them and, and get your kids involved. Get them involved in the presence, the reading of the word. Okay. By the way, guys, I didn't even see you up here. And we were in the same row. You know, then there's this idea of the church, which our church, like I said, there's, there's an agenda that God has. There's a reason he came here February 19th, 77 days ago. Wow. 77. Seven, seven. We could talk about that, but for those prophetic people, your antennas are popping up going, woo. Right? We're just 23 days away from Pentecost. I believe God, it's a significant time. You know, 50 days was right smack in the middle between the, the time he said, will you accommodate me and Pentecost? 50 days, so we're halfway to Pentecost right now. And so for our church, I believe when he said, will you accommodate me? It was, it was a request, like Crossing Life Church, would you accommodate me? Would you, would you like take care of me with worship and prayer and just declaring my word from this outpost? Would you, would you do that for me? And we said yes. It was across the board. People just responded in a supernatural way. Now the sexiness of that's diminished, right? That, that like initial like, whoo, yeah, let's go. And we said, yeah, let's go for, for the first week. And it was intense and powerful. And everyone was like, ah. And then they're like, oh, wow, I can't sustain this. And then we started growing and stewarding together and walking it out together and taking care together as a community to accommodate God. And then we saw things start to shift, a lot of different things in our midst. And I believe even with our town, with different things that are happening, I believe God's doing something. There is a massive increase of like things again on our property, fetishes and sacrifices, animal sacrifices from different we've stirred things there's been visitors from you know this the temple of satan and they've come and i i believe they came with an agenda and they didn't know what to do because the spirit of god was meddling and they bowed their knee and then they went and bowed their knee and so there they were they were like this but there was something going on in them and and my heart is that there's going to be intercessory prayers from this place that pray for those human hearts that they'd be set free. This leads us into this regional thing that God is doing. And, you know, we've, I've been perplexed by it. I've been perplexed by the fact that there's been so little involvement. But we've been meeting with pastors. We've been having, there's a lot stirring where people are just, and I would think about it. I would think about, like, what if this happened in Manchester and... How many of us, including our leadership team, would be going regularly to reinforce and stir that, right? So there's a real, churches and pastors are busy, but I do believe we're, we're getting ready to meet with a larger group that, from Manchester that, that are going to come and, and sow in. But it's never taking away from this primary thing that I started with, with our family, our community, the Crossing Life Church being called to keep the fire burning on the altar and he's training us in so many ways he's doing deep things in our heart and i want to end with this this clip really quick and 
I want to share this clip and then, oh, okay, guys, get ready here because I want you to listen to some of this and some of it's a little graphic, so, but I, I want you to be able to see this. This is right from SatanCon in Boston, like last week, right? When we read the testimony of all the salvations that came forth. I want you to just see, this is a 20 second clip out of there and I want you to just see this. It's so critical. show you that because we're not talking about some spooky way out there not happening kind of conspiracy thing there's a real mounting up of the forces of satan and it's not meant to be some ethereal thing it's meant to get inside human hearts and destroy them and there's a reason there's real stuff taking place here because when we lift up a beacon of 24-7 day and night prayer, like Psalm says, right? Day and night, just crying out to God. And, and it's, a, it's a little beacon right now. <laughs> and it's just kind of surviving on a, on, on a smaller percentage. And, and, and folks, I'm telling you, if we would just get... Some of you might think, well, I'm doing it. I'm like, every day I'm there. I'm helping keep the fire on the altar. I am not talking to you. Those of you who aren't here, pouring out in a regular way as part of our community, I know you're afraid. I know you don't know what to say. Figure out what to say. Overcome your fear. The love of the Lord is so powerful. And I'll tell you, if the 50% or so that didn't really participate at all would, this thing would be explosive and effortless. You know, and my heart, you got to keep praying for Kurt because he's held this thing like he is the main agent of holding this fire on the altar. He's constantly sending out all these texts and emails. It's not by a team of people. It's one person that if I got him up here to talk about it, he starts just weeping and crying because it's such a part of his heart and burden of what he feels the Lord has placed upon him. It's an intense thing that we're in now. It is not a gimmick. It's not a fad. It's not like, because we want some kind of accolade. This is like the living God is asked, will you accommodate me? And when it's beyond, you're like the thrill of it. Just like the early days of salvation. Like, you know, you're like, oh. And then life sets in and you're like going, oh, man. Wow, this is different than I thought. And you see clips like this, folks. Listen, think about, in a big way, creation. 
Think about how creation is groaning. I'm talking the trees, the rocks, the ground, just going, oh, oh, they're defying the creator of the universe. They're destroying the word of the Lord that's been around for centuries, millennia, written through thousands by the inspiration of the Spirit, and people have laid down their lives, and the blood of martyrs is in that very ground, crying out, no, the Lord, the Lord is supreme. And then, folks, we have been given this invitation, not even just truth in the Word. We've been given an invitation to say, don't worry, rocks and soil, and blood of the martyrs. Don't worry, trees and sky and moon and sun. You can rejoice because Jesus Christ is alive, and he's preeminent, and he's above all. We will declare it. And I'm telling you, I truly believe all creation, including the trees and the rocks, let alone humans, when we open our word, our mouth, and we declare day and night about the greatness of God, and we read this word that's being torn up and celebrated by Satan, we just open our word, our mouth, in the, in the slightest way and release one scripture from the word. And all creation's like, forget about anyone else in the room because there's probably only a couple. But all creation is like, yes. It's like water to my roots to hear. Yes, the word of the Lord endures forever. And I mean, like, like there is a cosmic thing going on here. Like, your voice engages all creation to say, yes, finally, to hear someone praise him, to release truth and declaration. Can you see this? I mean, this is like an amazing thing that if we'll join our hearts, it's not about people. People are being drawn in. I'm, I'm saying it is about people. Like, I'm not, that was wrong. But, I mean, God's ultimate thing is to draw all men to himself. But what I'm saying is when you're here alone, you are not alone. When I come to pray, I'm like, I don't care if anyone's here. I, I do love it because they're able to, like, you know, we're able to agree and the power of agreement and prayer and everything like that. That's why I encouraged us last week to, like, jump into, like, try to double up blocks, but not at the expense of leaving all these gaps that people are like, oh, four hours I have to do. Because people will fill in because there's conviction. But it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right if everybody just joins in. And I'm talking to the 50% that don't participate in any way. Just come. Just You don't know what to do. Just open your Bible and just start reading. Declaring the word so that all creation hears truth being proclaimed. There is something about that that we're not considering. We're not considering that they hear demonic stuff all day long. Creation groans. And we are the only people, folks, the church, we are the only people on earth that would even be possible of bringing an opposite voice and releasing light and salt, being pillars of truth, declaring the word with our families and believing that if we do that, you know, I want to just end right here with this scripture because I'm not preaching. But I mean, I've been so burdened with this. I'm telling you, just like. Don't worry, Steve, I'm not going to go too long. I just want to end with this Ephesians 3. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints. This is a real humble approach. 
This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations, which is your glory. And I'm telling you, folks, I would not back off one step. I would press into what God has for you. And if you had tribulations this week, it is not brain science. It is we are marked. And we, you don't be afraid because of that. You know, that just means you're not understanding God's greatness. His love, his greatness is so over you. His canopy is here. He is here to fight battles. But he wants people to actually stand up for him without excuse and say, I will stand for the Lord. I will stand. I will not back down. And that we will just bulldoze through this assault. And that we'll see the glory of God and then we'll laugh like he does. He, in the heavenlies, he laughs at his enemies, sends them in derision. And I want to charge everybody, especially those who haven't been involved, come and begin to dip your toes in prayer and get your spiritual life in shape. Amen. It was just said quickly last week. It's worth saying again real quickly. The response that happened just when Satan Con got on the radar of people, there was a small group in Boston that decided to do a spontaneous training and just gather people to hit the streets of Boston, do some evangelism training, and then go out. They thought they were going to get 40, 50 people. 250 people were waiting outside the building when they opened up that morning. And then they did a half a day training and then they stormed, I think, eight different stations all over the city of Boston with prayer and worship going on and a hundred people got saved. And that just blew me away. Eight years old to 80 people sharing their faith for the first time. And God's response to this thing, it's like what the enemy intended for evil. These hundred people that got saved, that would have never happened if Satan Con didn't come to Boston. I just believe that, you know, God works these things, the mystery of his purposes that just defies the intentions of the enemy's camp in our midst. And if the church is responding right now all over the earth, the church is responding and saying yes to him, and he is going to win. He is going to win. Yeah, I forgot something too. We wanted to end with blowing away the decibel level of the Satan worshipers watching the Bible be ripped up. Let's just like let a sound burst erupt from this place just to put them on notice. I mean, if if we could all be a shofar, we'd all just blow a shofar right now, then everything would be official. But let's just, we don't have that. So open your mouths and let's shout unto the Lord with a sound of, of, of triumph. And let's just release praise.
Amen. And that shout was for every unsaved loved one. That shout was to shatter off oppression and darkness off of our land, off our church, off our families, off our minds. We just thank you, Lord, for sealing this. I pray this week that there would be an outpouring of just supernatural, powerful love, goodness, light into our families, marriages, children, our hearts, our minds, established in hope and peace. And I thank you, Lord God. I thank you for the culmination and the explosion at Pentecost. I thank you, Lord, for this next week of being in the tent. I pray that that would mark the start of a whole new season of advancement and increase and harvest and salvations, Father. Let it be, Father. We pray that your light, your glorious gospel hits this earth in a powerful way that will make all men see you. Just break into people's oppression, addiction. Break into people's sense of deception and and not understanding and seeing your goodness and your love, Lord. Just thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. We're a little unique here. We do an appetizer message, and then we do a main course message. Um, and sometimes if the appetizer message is a little too filling, we just skip the break because you don't need a snack. And that's what we're doing today. Ah, uh, yeah, on the stage, I guess. Also, because of the break, I have to use this archaic handheld microphone. Sheesh. I paid so much money for this headset mic, and I never get to use it. Um, and as those of you guys who know here, you know I don't normally sound like Marvin Gaye, but today my throat has decided to drop a couple octaves. It's, it's not sore yet. My wife has had a sore throat all week, and because we have a healthy marriage, I now have a sore throat. well worth it. (laughs) Those who know, know. Yep, and those who don't need to see Weston Sherrill and go through Simbis. I'm saying. I'm really just trying to find where my stuff is, and I'm just um, delaying with some humor. Found it. I want to talk some about this idea of surprise, surprise, the church and the proclamation. And I'm going to preach this probably every single time I ever preach for as long as I live until we see the glory of God come through the church like Scripture says we should see. <clears throat> um, I, I was thinking about what I would title this message if I did title messages. And if I was going to title, I'd probably call it the proclamation. There's a Greek word for that called kerygma. In the scriptures, the kerygma means the proclamation. 
and the proclamation was that Christ is now king, right? That he's the king of kings. He has unified both the Jews and everyone else under one Lord, and he has uprooted all the other gods of the other nations and all the other rulers and principalities and powers and kings and said that they have to bow their knee just like everyone else to his lordship. And that's a major theme. So in Colossians 2, 6 through 8, let me pause there. I just had this thought, too. You saw the Satan con stuff and all that stuff, right? <clears throat> like, this is nothing new to the church throughout history, to the people of God throughout history. Do you know when Jesus was making his disciples, what he did with his young group of teenage disciples, maybe some of them were in their 20s? <clears throat> he brought them to the place of grossest, darkest, pagan Satan worship. He walked them all the way up to the most northern part of the land where where the influence of, of the temple was at its weakest, and the people who lived up there worshipped all sorts of gods, and there was an entire temple to the god Pan, P-A-N. And he brought them there, and this place was called the Gates of Hell. They did child sacrifice and worshipped goats and slaughtered animals and worshipped them there, and he brought his disciples there, the place they had been taught their entire life not to go because it's wicked, because that's where the darkness is. That's where the evil stuff is. Don't go there. You might be influenced. You might get caught up in it. <clears throat> you might be made unclean through it. And Jesus brought them right to that gate of hell. And he asked them, in that place, who do you say that I am? It was a challenge. It was a confrontation between light and dark. And he brought his young, growing, learning disciples. He was not afraid to bring them right to the very gate of hell. And he said, who do you say that I am? And they said all the things they thought, you're the prophet, you're some people say this. And he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? He said, you're Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, you didn't get that from your own flesh and blood, Peter. You didn't come up with that your own. God just gave you that revelation. And upon this truth that I am who I say I am, that I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all things, that every power in heaven, on earth, and below the earth is going to bow to me. Upon this revelation, I'm going to build my church. He didn't say, upon this revelation, I'm going to go kick their butt for you and you guys will be safe while you watch. He said, I'm going to build my church. And then not even the gate of hell itself and this stuff will prevail against that. Do you understand? This is God. David, long before this, said this in one of his Psalms. Why do the nations rage and plot vain things? against our God and his ordered one. It says that he sits in the heavens and he laughs. I want you to understand that. He's not laughing in sarcastic mockery with some vileness in his heart. He's not even angry. He's laughing at the insanity of it all, right? Laughing at like, we can't even comprehend what that expression looks like. We've probably seen it. How many of you guys have seen the new Mario movie? Raise your hand. I have four kids, so I see every movie. <clears throat> but there's so many cool examples. Like, in the Mario movie, the opening scene is, like, Bowser and this massive army come, and it shows this army of penguins, and they're, like, gearing up, and they're, like, unlaunching everything. And from their perspective, it looks like they are going to conquer Bowser and his army and just wipe them out. Like, the sound effects, the explosions, their missiles, their king is leading the army. 
And then the camera pans out to a third party perspective. And all suddenly the explosions that were like shaking the theater sound like this. Ping, pong, ping, pong. Because it's a bunch of tiny little penguins throwing snowballs at monsters that are coming at them. And the whole point was to say, like, it brought you, like, wow, what a fair, ba a fair battle. And then when you get actual perspective, you're like, oh, my God, that's embarrassing. <clears throat> and God sits in the heavens from this perspective, and he laughs as he just puts his enemies in derision, it says. And then he proclaims who he is, and he, he warns them, now, come kiss the son, lest he get angry. Do you understand the picture David is presenting? He's presenting a picture from God's perspective. He's saying, this is, this is foolishness, guys. It's foolish. God's laughing. For he has a king that rules on Zion, and he is the one that you need to bow to and kiss that son before he gets angry with you. You don't want to see him angry with you. Right? And like Noah said, in the midst of this, what does it do? Well, it led to... Over 100 salvations of people coming to Christ. And you know this thing was supposed to be considered the largest gathering of Satanism in the history of Satanism in Boston. The largest gathering. 800 people from all over the place gathered together in this hotel auditorium to tear some pieces of paper out of a book and make some symbolic gestures that makes God laugh. <clears throat> We have, guys, we have hundreds, if not thousands of churches in America that gather weekly with more numbers than that. Oh, weekly. Like every week, no big deal. I don't have to call a special meeting, gathering from all over the globe. Weekly, churches across just the United States gather as if it's normal with more numbers than that. Now imagine if more than just 5% of the people in each of those churches actually prayed consistently. Because those are the numbers. And you all know it right now. All of you are saying, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, it's true. <clears throat> it's not a mystery why a church would be so, would struggle at the idea of coming down and praying for one or two hours a week. Like, it's only hard because the value on such a thing isn't owned. It's not seen, right? And you can say, no, I do value prayer, but you don't value it enough for a little bit more inconvenience, right? Like, the church of God is supposed to be a house of prayer. That's just the call of it. And the assumption, the assumption that has proven to be wrong throughout modern history is that the Christians who are making up that church are praying, but it's just clear that it's not true. And we can, we can all pretend the emperor has his clothes on and go along acting like, yeah, it's clear, everyone prays. When it's not, this is how we know, guys, that there have been, and I'm not picking any one person out because there's been too many to pick out just one who have said, I don't know what to pray. I can't go and pray. I'm not, I don't even know how to do that. I don't pray good. What does that mean? 
What has the church done and what has the church taught if we have a whole body of people who, who are in that place? It's wild. I was just screenshotting some quotes. Um, I forgot I had opened up to Colossians. I was going somewhere with that, right? <clears throat> this quote was, is from a man named Samuel Chadwick. He was a man of prayer. He said, the one concern of the devil, remember those big scary guys up there, is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, our wrestling through programs and ministry outings, feeding homeless or orphans or going to prisons or doing whatever we're doing. He laughs at those efforts, those toils, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. And that's scriptural. Like, I wouldn't come up here and quote something to you guys that wasn't scriptural, right? It was scriptural. And then E.M. Bounds, who anyone who knows anything about prayer knows that name. And he said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better machinery or new organizations or more novel methods, but men who the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men and men of prayer. Like these are powerful quotes and statements, but they carry weight. And this is the point, guys. Like, what we're up against makes God laugh because he knows the vastness of his own might and his own strength, and he sees the reality. But when we are not in prayer, we are not aware of that reality. We don't live from that place or from that reality. Instead, we live from our own reality down here, which is fed by many different voices than the voice of God. It's voices you don't have time to hear because you're too busy living according to the other voices. There's way too many voices vying for your attention, and we give them the majority of our time, and then we give them little prayer, and we wonder why we're led by those voices and not the voice of God. We wonder why we can't come pray, because we don't know how to pray, because we don't pray. And then when, when God is trying to speak, we don't recognize it, and we get thrown into turmoil, and we need to seek counsel after counsel and people, and we're looking for someone to lead us to do what God wants us to do because we have no clue what God wants us to do. But we know exactly when the next season of The Mandalorian is coming out. (laughs) And we know exactly when the next Marvel, Marvel movie is coming out and the whole timeline of when the next ones are coming out. We're well aware of those. We are tapped in to the political commentators and all their voices on either side, on every side. We're tapped into the the cultural models. We know exactly what clothing line is in style today, what purses are are really blinging today, what what teams are in first place and doing good in the playoffs. We know the stats of those guys that are leading our teams 
We can sit around the water coolers and discuss those stats off the top of our head. We don't even need to Google them and look them up. But if someone says, where, where is that message Sean was just quoting today about God's manifold wisdom being expressed to the powers in the heavenlies? Let me Google that real quick. We don't know God's stats by heart because we're not in it, because we don't value it enough. And then we wonder why the church gets all shook when 800 people come together and cosplay. <clears throat> in Colossians 2, 6 through 8, now we're going to read it. And just to be clear, because I got to do three warnings before I read this. <clears throat> I'm not downplaying the fact that we have an enemy. I'm just downplaying the enemy. Right. Do you understand? Right. Like it's hard for me to see that and be concerned about it. In the sense that maybe it's ignorance or if I just hope it's a greater faith in God that, that he has promise to go before me and be behind me, to be my strong tower, my fortress, my refuge, the place where I run that a thousand will fall at my side and 10,000 will fall at my right hand, but they will not come near to me. <clears throat> and so therefore, I can go out in the confidence of the church that was brought forth before the gate of hell and say, the gate of hell is real. I'm looking at it. It's there. They are doing everything that they say they're doing, and there is really enemies and they are powerful to those who are not in Christ. But my commission and my call dictates me not to be afraid of that. But to walk in a greater confidence that's beyond my own ability and a trust that the God who has called me to this has equipped me for this. And that at the simple prayer of a, of a child of God, he comes and he's there in force and in power. It doesn't mean we don't do spiritual warfare, but our spiritual warfare looks like magnifying Jesus for who he is. If the spiritual warfare is just being deeply rooted and grounded in the maturity of the knowledge of God and of who he is. <clears throat> so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus, your Lord, just as you have received him as Lord, Continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. And this is what was resonating in me. <clears throat> At first, I was like, I want to just do a deep dive in the book of Ephesians because the book's awesome. If I was going to summarize Ephesians, I'd summarize it like this. The gospel through proclamation and demonstration. <laughs> and I'll get into that if we, if we get to it. But I really wanted to harp on this concept, guys. Paul was writing and warning the church in Colossae saying, so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, as Lord, walk in him. 
simple statement, unless we start thinking, how did I receive Christ Jesus the Lord? And this is where I see the disastrous roots in so many households in the church. Like, all of this came from praying into the family, just so you can track with me here, guys. I was praying into the family, I've been praying into the family and the idea of husbands and wives and what their purpose and their call is and, and how children become children of God and how they grow up to walk in the Lord. It requires this structure that God has put in place and how the church becomes a healthy place by healthy families. And when I say healthy, I mean in the faith and the gospel. <clears throat> That this is what God is after. It's like this produces the church of, of power. Where gifts begin to demonstrate themselves because they've been watered and grown in the presence of God and in prayer. But the concern is that we don't have that yet. We're growing into it and we want that and we believe God is going to do that because that's what this is all about. But it's not there and so I've been praying like God do this. And I just said, God, what are the obstacles? What am, what am I to pray into? And it's just this idea, I began to see it, and it's going to get wild because I saw it in the Old Testament. There's some cool stuff in the Old Testament, guys. Just try reading it sometime. It's cool. Obadiah is not just a funny name, man. <clears throat> He's got some good stuff. But as you're reading through these things, there's one, one trend I saw that has stood out to me and, you know, Speaks into this Colossians thing. Remember, that's where we're going here. This idea of that we operate according to the principles of the world and we don't know it. We don't even know it. They're so deeply ingrained that we don't see them. We think it's right. We think it's, we see it so often with these concepts of, I don't want to get into rant, um, but like modern psychology and all the language and the ideas, like we're going through that in Antioch right now, right now so it's fresh in my mind. And I was just, it like burns in me so strongly. Like in our last cohort, I had to keep stopping from going on rants. It was like, we gotta stay in the material because this is ludicrous. But like when you see like just the church's emphasis on, on this idea of emotional health, right? And, and the, the different language that you come through it, all of it, right? Psychology is, is just the modern attempt to understand the human soul. You understand? Except they don't believe in the human soul, so they call it the psyche. And then, from a godless perspective, they try to understand it, and then they establish rules and laws. And then, because their language and their attempts bring solace to your soulish needs, we feel, oh, it works. It really does. And we create this second gospel that's not the gospel. Where the gospel says, you want health from your soul? Repent. Yeah. Repent. And live according to the teachings of Christ and those principles. But we don't. So I don't want to get on a rant. My point is here. We are living according to principles of this world and we don't even see it. And we use all of its language every day and it's all throughout the church. And then we think it's what we need because it brings soulish comfort. Yet it doesn't touch your actual issue, which is sin. And repentance of it. Anyway. In a, in a nutshell, guys, Israel had an amazing uh, leadership built when they were first born. It was um, God. God led Israel. And he did a fantastic job. 
But the people didn't want that. Because it didn't leave any room for them to have their own way. And we know this because the one time the leader God appointed Moses took a vacation up a mountain, more like a sabbatical, it was about 40 days. When he left, they were like, all right, let's worship God the way we want to now. And they created a golden calf and they began to have a party and they called him Yahweh. They didn't say we're having a different God. They said, this is Yahweh, the one who brought us out of Egypt. This is what he looks like to us. Let's worship him the way we'd like. And we can live the way we'd like. And he does. And Moses comes down and says, that's not good. Guys, stop. Throws Ten Commandments. All sorts of cool things happen, including the earth opening up and swallowing people. You can read about it. We don't have time right now. <clears throat> but it moves on. And he establishes judges to lead them. Because they had rejected God. And then these judges are up and down. And so the people start demanding a king. And God says, I'll give you a king. But the king is going to be the type of king after you. And he's going to take your things. He's going to tax you. And he's going to take your, your young men. And he's going to bring them into the army. And you're going to regret having a king that you want. But I'm going to give him to you because you're, you're demanding him. God had always planned on giving them kings. He promised it to Abraham way, way back at the beginning. From you, Abraham, kings will come from your line, he says. <clears throat> But they get a king after their own, their, their own image. And this king does not follow God. He's concerned about himself and the people. He falls away. God raises up a king after his own heart, this man named David. David lives so rightly before the Lord and does not allow for any idols or false gods. And he lives with a heart before the Lord. So much so that God makes an everlasting covenant with him promises to David, you have followed me so well that you will never fail to be someone from your seed on the throne, ever. And in your line, David, will come the Messiah. This is what we see through scriptures. So David has a son named Solomon, and Solomon falls away from the Lord and does bad things, and God says, this is bad, but because I promised your father David, I'm not going to rip the, the throne from you but you're gonna suffer. So Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is worse than Solomon, and strays, and so the kingdom gets split. 10 tribes go away, get stripped from David's line, but because of the covenant made to David, God keeps Judah and Benjamin under the control of David's seed. And this splits the kingdom into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. That's your history lesson. <clears throat> now, what does this mean? It means this. That this, the king of the northern kingdom was a man named Jeroboam. And what he did plunged the northern kingdom into a never-ending dive to destruction through God's judgment over a 300-year period. What did he do that was so bad? This is what he did. Because he was afraid the people in the northern kingdom might return back to the southern kingdom and join Rehoboam again because of how often they'd have to go to the temple to worship, which was down in the southern kingdom, he decided he was going to create two places of worship for the northern people so they wouldn't have to go into enemy territory. And so he created a place in the northern part of Israel, in Dan, 
And what he created was a golden calf so they could come worship Yahweh. And then in the southernmost part of the northern kingdom, right on the border of the southern kingdom, he created in a place called Bethel another golden calf where they could worship Yahweh and make their sacrifices. Bethel was literally called the house of God. That's what the word means. And they named it that, and he put a golden calf there. And God judges Jeroboam. And he says, in 1 Kings 13, it says, A man of God came from Judah to Bethel by a revelation from the Lord while Jeroboam was standing beside the altar to burn incense. The man of God cried out against the altar by a revelation from the Lord. Altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. A son will be born to the house of David named Josiah, and he will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who are burning incense on you. Human bones will be burned on you. And then he goes on and continues to prophesy. And what we see this is, I want you to understand that. So there's judgment on Jeroboam as this king. And all he did was try to create, in his own wisdom, a political solution for the kingdom that God gave him. He did it in his own wisdom. He was thinking according to the principalities of human thinking, of of the principles of human thought, and he allowed himself to make a decision as a king under the Lord that was disaligned with the Lord's will. And so he did that. And then his son, Ahijah, takes over. And it says this, that he followed in the sins of his father, Jeroboam, and did not destroy or tear down the altars in Dan or Bethel. Great. Ahijah had a son. Same thing. Same story. Now, we're three generations out now. Ahijah and his son did some things. And it says that he continued in the sins of his father, Jeroboam. Now, to skip to the end, guys, it goes on for... 15, 20 generations, and every single king, without exception, read your Bible, fact check me, I challenge you to do it. I'll give you $5 if you read through all of First and Second Kings fact checking me and can come to me and show me a king that it doesn't say this to. Yeah, but believe me, guys, if you haven't read your Bible now, you're not going to do it for five bucks. I feel pretty safe here. Oh... Whoa, that's right. I went there. Fighting words. Come at me, bro. Here's what happens. Every king, five generations, six generations, seven generations, some of them, it says this, some of them tore down different high places and began to walk in the ways of the Lord. And it said this, but they did not repent or turn away from the sins of their father, Jeroboam. And then in the southern kingdom, we see this same thing happening. Except the southern kingdom is a line of unbroken sons of David. The northern kingdom has uprisings and overthrowing of kings in their lines, right? So Ahab comes along and his whole family gets decimated by a man named Jehu. And Jehu is called by God, appointed by the prophet Elijah himself, to go and destroy the wicked king Ahab and Jezebel, who had led the land into the worst idolatry they'd ever experienced. 
And Jehu is anointed by God himself to do this. And he does it. And he wipes out the entire line of Ahab. He fulfills the prophecies of the Lord. Jezebel gets eaten in the streets. The blood of Ahab gets licked up by the dogs as was prophesied. And the idols are destroyed. And every single prophet of Baal was rounded up by Jehu through some cunning techniques. Right? He told them we're going to have one big worship service to Baal. And he said, any prophet of Baal that doesn't show up will die because I want all the forces of the prophet of Baal to show up. And he brings them all together, and then he has them all slaughtered for worshiping Baal. He was zealous for the Lord's worship. And do you know what God said about Jehu? He did not turn from the sin of his father Jeroboam. And because of that, the judgment of the Lord was still on the northern kingdom. What? This man was zealous for, for God to fulfill the prophecy and the call in his life. And he did it with all the zealousy, zealousy you could come up with. And the commentary on him was, but he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam by destroying the high places. What do you think Jeroboam thought of these high places? He's like 10, 12 generations out. He was born and raised just thinking that's totally normal. That is just life. That's where we worship. There was no word being preached from the law to them saying, hey, you only worship in the temple. You only worship the Lord God. Don't make any graven images of me. He had no clue. No one ever told him that. He never heard of it. He never read of it. We know this because the law has been lost at this point in their history. No one's preaching it. Jeroboam is following the Lord the best he can. His father taught him how to walk in the ways of the Lord. Elijah came and taught him how to do it. People, generations before, were like, this is how you serve the Lord, by going to Dan or Bethel and worshiping Yahweh there. And so in ignorance, they continue to worship the Lord in a way that is completely abominable to him. And even though they're striving with all their strength to live right, because they're ignorant to the truth, they are being held accountable for the sins of Jeroboam, not like some weird generational curse that passed on. No, but because they're still living in it. They're still doing those things, but they think it's good. They're teaching their children that this is good. They're teaching them the traditions of men as if they are the commandments of God. And God is saying, this is an obstacle that is keeping my presence from you, and you will be judged for it. And that seems harsh, right? It's happening even in the southern kingdom, those sons of David, where we have upshoots like Asa, who tore down idols. But he left the high places up. Jehoshaphat, who literally went out with musicians because the Lord told him to and won great victories, but left the high places and the Asherah poles up. Hezekiah, who literally had an angel go out and conquer 180,000 of the Assyrian enemies that had come against him because he decided to trust in the Lord, left the high places up. Then he had a son named Manasseh that was so wicked and so evil, it sealed the judgment of the southern kingdom. But he had a son named Josiah who was prophesied. And Josiah, I want you guys to see this. Josiah would have done the same thing as all of his fathers before him. Except for during his time, the law was rediscovered. 
a priest and a prophet had gone into the temple and discovered the scriptures again and brought the scriptures to Josiah and read them to him. And Josiah wept in repentance because the sins that he had lived in thinking it was right and good was revealed to him that this was wrong and defied the truth and the commands of God. And so he repented according to truth and knowledge, not just according to wanting to be right with God. In other words, not from his soul, his, his feelings, his emotions, or doing what's right. Works-based type stuff. Instead, he saw truth and he repented and his repentance was complete. He tore down every high place, every Asherah pole, every altar to Baal. He had every prophet killed. He had the bones of prophets of Baal that had been buried in the land dug up, brought, ground into dust, and cast on the sea so that it would be swept away from the land. And then returned to the worship of the Lord. And the Lord responded with the repetition of the covenant to David, to Josiah. And said, I'm sorry, Manasseh has sealed the fate of Judah, but because you have walked in the ways of your father David, who walked in my ways, you will not see judgment in your lifetime. <clears throat> this is what happened in the Old Testament. What is this? How does this relate to the New Testament? We don't have kings. You're a king and a priest before the Lord. You've been called into this position. You have been given the delegated authority of the Lord himself to rip up the altars and the high places and the, the false teachings and the philosophies of this world that we're living in and we don't know it. Why? Because we haven't discovered the law yet for ourselves. We come and we sit in church and we listen to people preach good messages and you couldn't tell me if your life depended on it, if it was biblical or not. I'm pretty persuasive. I'm charismatic. I have a strong teaching gift. I could be persuading you all to just follow another tradition of man that just sounds cool and better because I link a couple verses together. And you would never know it. Because you've never read Obadiah, Nahum. Right now you're like, are those in the Bible? Guys, we all say them very differently, man. Unless anyone here speaks the original dead Hebrew, we're all in trouble, right? Habakkuk, Habakkuk. It doesn't matter, guys, it doesn't matter. We all say James, and the book is actually called Jacob. I mean, that's just my point, right? Like, the point is, like, these guys weren't named James. That was an English name that came from, like, the 1500s. The new King James introduced to us the book of James when it's really the book of Yaqub. There's some little information for you, free. Put in your back pocket for later. <clears throat> My point is this, guys. We're looking to discover truth. And where do we look? We go to YouTube for some cool preaching, some podcasts, when literally we have the self-revelation of the King himself at our fingertips. And we're walking in the deception of modern tradition. And we don't know it because our parents taught it to us who 
had it taught to them by their parents, who had it taught to them by their parents. It's why in the first principles in Antioch, one of my favorite expressions is someone starts going off on non-scriptural ideas like, well, how I feel. If I hear the expression start with, I feel, I just immediately we know that's not going anywhere good, right? And I will say to them, no, 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 listen, I'm sure you love your grandmother, but I don't care what she taught you. What did you get from the scriptures? Do you understand? My point is this. I love my grandmother. She taught me a lot of good things. But the authority is not my grandmother. It's here. And I need to be willing to vet all the things I've built my life on by scripture. What does this mean? It means this, guys. In love. I didn't even preach my message. I didn't. Colossians was the first verse, and you know me, I usually have 10 verses, and I did. I had the whole book of Ephesians broken down. <clears throat> yeah, the appetizer changed my taste buds. No, I really, because even what I was going to bring from Ephesians was, was this, guys, that we are desperately in need of transforming the way we think of things. Do you understand? We still think, whether you believe it or not, that suffering is some sign of things being wrong or inappropriate or unhealthy. We think we still operate by the measuring stick of pleasure, happiness, self-fulfillment, justice, fairness. There is nothing fair about anything that has happened in this book or that it teaches or says. If, this, if fairness was on the issue, we're all going to hell. Every one of us. No exceptions. That's the only fair result for how we have lived and how we continue to live. Thank God he is not treating us fairly. That suffering throughout scripture is constantly told us that this is how we identify with Christ. Paul, in one of his, his famous expressions to the church, says this. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. And that sounds cool in English, but it's way cooler in Greek. The word fellowship being used there is the Greek word koinonia, which doesn't mean hanging out. It means intimate knowledge of each other. It's the same word used for when Adam knew Eve, right? The Hebrew version of it. And when we get to the New Testament, this word koinonia is literally interchangeable for when married people know each other. Koinonia with his suffering. Now, is Paul a sadist? Is that why he said that? Sadist meaning someone who finds perverse pleasure and pain? No? Or maybe that's masochist, sorry. Sadist enjoys giving pain, right? Any psychologists out there that can help me? Okay. <laughs> now that I've trashed psychology. Hey, 
every field needs to be redeemed. So I want, hopefully you didn't hear that I was saying, like, if you're a psychologist, you're dumb. No, you're probably super smart, but the foundation of what you got your degree in was not the scriptures. It was Freud and Nietzsche and human traditions. And so I'm just saying, evaluate it with scripture so you can redeem that area. Paul was not that. But Paul wanted to know Christ above everything else. And therefore, he said, if suffering will bring me to that, then I want to intimately know suffering. He also wanted to know the power of his resurrection. So he wasn't saying, he's just saying, I want to know Christ. I want this. We think opposite though, guys. This, I'm just challenging. I'm not saying like, hey, we're going to go through the whole list of all of the ways human modern psychology have seeped into the church and created a false gospel that we think is the gospel. I'm saying this. Rediscover the law for yourself. Start reading it. Start digging into it. Make it a priority. We here at the church provide Ample opportunities for you to dig into the scripture with first principles and life groups and Antioch and every other thing. There's never been a person who's ever come to me and said, I want to know more about the scripture. And I said, I don't have time. Get away from me. Ever. And we've trained an entire team of people who are also available at all times, anytime to help someone know the scriptures more. Do you know how many people come up to us saying, I want to know the scriptures more? Not a lot. We have to recruit people to to convince them that they should really dig into the scriptures and learn it. The point is this, guys. We need to rediscover the scriptures, the law, to dig out the idols because then it will reestablish godly priorities in our lives. And we don't have them. We don't. Don't tell me you do. And listen, you can say, but I'm growing. That's awesome. That's the point. Grow. Keep growing. But don't settle because you grew a little. Right? Don't settle because you grew a little. Think about how you use your money. Think about how you use your time. Think about how you use your your life focus and your emotions and your affections and your home and your house and your property and your family time. Think about all of it. And reevaluate it in the lens of scripture. And don't allow the common thoughts to come. It's going to be so hard to break it. You won't even be able to do it on your own. You need someone, a third party, to be able to look and say, hmm, I'm not sure that's a scriptural principle you're basing that on. Okay? If I hear the word boundaries, it it creates a gag reflex in me. Why? Because we shouldn't have boundaries? No, I'm sure there's, there's godly uses for boundaries. They are just nowhere near where we set them. We set our boundaries around comfort zones. If I set boundaries around people I was comfortable with and not comfortable with, I wouldn't have mentored half the people I've mentored. If you're here and I mentored you, you're not one of them. I thoroughly enjoy you. And feel totally comfortable. I'm just saying, guys, we do. We put boundaries we, we feel justice and fairness and health and boundaries and oh, I don't want to go through the list. I don't want to offend everyone in the room, but there's just, listen, do it. <clears throat> Compare it to scripture. Compare it to scripture. 
Do you understand? Compare it to Scripture and look at what Scripture calls us to do. It calls us to honor kings that use family members for human torches in their gardens. Find me a psychologist that tells you that's healthy for you. I dare you to. Yet Peter thinks it's healthy. It might not be healthy for your mortal flesh. It might not be healthy for for your right standing and pleasure on this earth, but we're not living for this place. We have to do this. And guys, listen, I hear the, I hear the high fives. I hear the, you know, the, the verbal high fives and the virtual high fives and the amens and all of that, guys. <clears throat> Keep it. Hold on to it. Interpret it into your heart and let it manifest through action. Like Sean talked about last week, you cannot grow without participating. You can't. And here's the thing you got to decide, and this is what I'm going to close with because this is what you need to wrestle with now as a body, as a people. Whether you are going gonna to follow the Lord where he's put you or not. And here comes some controver- controversial things, but it's only controversial if you don't read your Bible. Make up your mind whether or not the Lord has called you to be at this place. Make up your mind. Take as much time as you need. Seek as much counsel as you need. Pray as much as you need to to come to that conclusion. Yes or no. But don't be double-minded. Pick one and live it. Okay? If, if you do feel like God has called you to be part of this place, then be a part of this place. Honor the scriptures which tell you to listen to the leaders God has put in this place. To submit to them as if you would to any godly person. Look at their lives. Test their lives. See if it's a godly life first. Do everything scripture tells you. Take as much time as you need to do that. But when you've made your decision, live by it. Do you understand? And when those people that we're trusting to follow put a call out, answer the call. Do you understand this? And I'm going to use another example, and it's not humorous, so please don't laugh for those of you guys who've seen The Lord of the Rings. And if you still haven't seen The Lord of the Rings, Sarah, can we do another Lord of the Rings night for these people? At the end, the battle... The final battle is lost, if not for this guy. It's such a powerful scene. Tolkien's theology is so rich. It's so deep. It's so good and biblical. The king returns, and he is going to lose this battle, if not for him going to rally an army of the dead who are left tormented as the dead. They're not allowed to, to, to leave this earth because they broke a vow to the king that they made. And part of the victory that was dependent on it was the true king who returned who called them and gave them another chance to fulfill their vow by coming and fighting alongside the king. And they decided to do so and they come and they sweep the battlefield and they bring a great victory and the reward is that they were released from their bondage to go into their heavenly reward. This is 
This is something here, guys, where God takes these things seriously. I know we live in America by the principles of this world where we think we're just all independent agents, free to do what we want, when we want, how we will. When the scripture says, no, there's a king and your knee needs to bow to him. And where he sets up ecclesias with delegated authority and he said, you go be a part, it's because you have an offering to bring there. You have a valuable gift or offering to offer to it, to come alongside and give your life to this thing. This is what it comes down to, guys. Here's where the, the rubber meets the road. This is your altar call. If the idea of doing that causes inner turmoil and clash within your soul and you start to feel angst or conflict or anger or judgment or anything that doesn't line up with Galatians 6 and the fruit of the Spirit, then you have a clash between the principles of Christ and the principles of the world that have been operating in your soul and you have not known it. You know what the scriptures say to do when you have that clash? Seek the Lord, repent, and receive his truth. That's what we do. We seek the Lord and we repent. So take everything I just said with that thing. Take as much time as you need to to decide where God has called you and where he's placed you. But once you have, live that. And when God has those types of people and those type of ecclesias planted, then he will be, be able to entrust his spirit and his power and his demonstrations behind the proclamations of those places. And all of that starts, all of that starts with the church becoming a house of prayer to the Lord for the nations. It has to, it has to, there's no other option. So Lord, we just ask that you would take this word that you've released and you would water it, God, that you'd anoint it with your spirit right now, God, that your spirit would do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. That you'd saturate this truth in our hearts, God, and this, this challenge for us to seek you, that we would take your word and we'd press it firmly against our soul and allow it to search the inner places. God, that it would eradicate the principles of this world that have hidden and have been understood, God, that it would cause us to find the high places of the world's principles in our soul. It would cause us to dig up the bones of the world's principles that have laid dormant and resonant and have influenced the way we think and live. That we dig them up and we grind them, God, and we destroy them and we release them and we receive the infilling of your truth. God, that together with all the saints, we would begin to know what is the height and depth and length and width of your love, God. Of your truth. Just take a minute or two right now. Do business with God. Just begin to say, like, take what you've heard and apply it right now. Just say, God. I know this is true. It feels true, God. Make this true. What do you require of me? What is it that you're asking? What is the steps? How do we do this?